So soon after the opening of what we know now as Old St Paul's, and I will call it Old St Paul's even though at the time, um, of course, it was just St Paul's, but I can't help myself. Um, Old St Paul's, um, soon after the opening of the building in Mulgrave Street in 1866, the first Bishop of Wellington, Charles Abraham, said of it that it was a very handsome building of wood and the interior is a great success. Being built of totara, it may last unless some accident occurs to it several centuries. However, less than a century later, the future of the church was under threat as the Anglican authorities, who were at the time planning the new cathedral in Molesworth Street, contemplated what to do with Old St Paul's when its congregation had moved to the new building. The ensuing battle to save the church, which lasted for over a decade, tested New Zealanders' understanding of heritage, of community value, of private property rights and spirituality. So today um, I'm going to focus my attention just on this period of crisis in the 50s and 60s when Wellington was divided about the future of the church and followed the efforts of those trying to decide the future of St Paul's from both sides. So the Anglican Parish Church of St Paul's was designed in the early 1860s by the very remarkable Frederick Thatcher, who was both priest for the parish and the architect of the church. It was consecrated and opened in 1866. Um, the church was initially neither particularly large nor particularly stable in the Wellington southerly winds, and over the next 10 years it was rapidly expanded in three stages to add both more pews and more solidity. And actually though, a lot of those um, enlargements are actually what we come to know of as old St Paul's now. St Paul's was a parish church for Thorndon, a suburb which at that time contained both large merchant houses and tiny streets lined with tiny cottages. And it was also um, uh, responsible for looking after other parts of the inner city and at, at the time far-flung areas of Wadestown and Kaiwharafara. In many ways, as a parish church, St Paul's was typical rather than unique. The congregation was what we would call today fiercely low church. They had very little interest and great suspicion in the trappings of high Anglicanism, such as um, taking of communion or even singing in church. However, St Paul's was unusual in two respects. Firstly, as well as being a parish church for Thorndon, it was the cathedral for the Wellington Diocese. Um, and this was as a result of a deal cut between Bishop, Bishop Abraham and the penny-pinching residents of Thorndon who didn't believe they should have to replace their earlier church, which was on the site of the Beehive, which was called at the time as ugly a church as it is possible to find. <laughs> So as a result of this deal, um, the building, um, Old St Paul's, ended up being both a cathedral and a church. And although there's a number of such buildings in New Zealand now, so for example, St Mary's in New Plymouth, this dual role was uncommon at the time and Abraham had to explain it to people. And to acknowledge this status, the building was known as either a pro-cathedral or a cathedral church. So the second distinctive feature of its history was that St Paul's was also New Zealand's unofficial national church for almost a century. Since it was the closest church to Parliament, it was used for state funerals, royal visits and other national events. And members of Parliament would also come to the church to bless the beginning of every um, General Assembly session. So here we have three events, perhaps the biggest one at the top, which is the funeral of Richard John Seddon in June 1906, the visit of the Dutch uh, Duke and Duchess of York, later King George VI and the Queen Mother in 1927, with the amazing um, movable beds there. Um, 
And, um, and then the third image is the country's first state funeral for a civilian who was um, Frederick Truby King in 1938. Um, so the first statement that Wellington needed a bigger and better cathedral came only 30 years after Old St Paul's was built in 1895. The newly appointed Bishop of Wellington, Frederick Wallace, had arrived from the UK in 1895 with his friend the Lord Bishop of Salisbury, John Wordsworth. Apparently Wordsworth took one look at Old St Paul's and told Wallace that the first order of the day was to build himself a new cathedral on a more central site. So a great um, central, uh, new cathedral fund appeal was launched, donations came in and a site in Taranaki Street was purchased. This scheme failed, as did many other schemes in the face of wars and economic depression, and as a result it wasn't until the early 50s when a new plan was finally announced for a large new cathedral on the Molesworth Street site, finally came together and the Queen laid the foundation stone for it during her famous 1953-54 tour of New Zealand. And this was what the cathedral was to look like, um, depicted on the front cover of Church and People in December 1953. So the Anglican authorities were really ambitious for their new cathedral, as well as providing a place for the Wellington community, of course. They wanted their cathedral to be the New Zealand equivalent of Westminster Abbey or the Washington National Cathedral in the USA, where grand national services could be held. And furthermore, in this time period, um, the Thorndon area was earmarked to be redeveloped into a grand new government centre, and the Anglican authorities wanted the cathedral to be a very visible statement of, its import of the importance of Christianity in our capital city. The cathedral was to have three chapels, a large war memorial chapel, a Maori chapel and a lady chapel. And of course it's the lady chapel that is the crucial part of the story. So though, for those of you who don't know what a lady chapel is, it's a small chapel on the side of a larger cathedral which is used for quiet uh, reflection, prayer and for smaller ceremonies. So when they announced these plans for the new church, the Anglican authorities also pronounced that part of Old St Paul's was going to be cut up and used into the new, um, used in the new cathedral building as this lady chapel. Um, parts, but only parts, would be used. Uh, and the congregation was told, the congregation of St Paul's was told that this would ensure that Old St Paul's would continue to live on in their new building. And it was presented as a fait accompli to the congregation of the church at that time. And the people fundraising for the new cathedral started factoring in the money they would get from the sale of the Old St Paul's site into their balance sheet for building the very expensive new cathedral. Um, now it needs to be remembered that at this time it was fairly commonplace for timber buildings to be shifted in New Zealand, including churches, and this is an Anglican church that was being moved on the east coast, not for the first but for the second time, and this is it getting stuck in a river <laughs> during its move, and I just love that photo. <laughs> um, okay, so... For the Anglican authorities, there was no future for Old St Paul's where it was. Firstly, of course, the people of the Thorndon congregation would be moving to populate the new cathedral, and so the old church would no longer be needed for parish services. Secondly, there was a determination to see the old building remained used for a spiritual purpose. The Dean of Wellington, Dean Davies, wrote that no one loved the church as much as the parishioners, but to them the building was more than a historic building. It was a house of God and a place of worship. He wrote that they wanted to see it preserved and constantly used just for that purpose, not for, a, as he said, a museum for idle sightseers or as a historic relic. Idle sightseers. Um, and the Bishop of Wellington at the time said 
uh, also said that if it did, if it did become just a museum for idle sightseers, and uh, his phrase was, it would become a mere curiosity, devoid of spiritual significance and life. The Lady Chapel scheme, he felt, would allow the church to continue to be used as a place of worship. Uh, and then furthermore, the Anglican authorities had the position that the moving of this building would the, be the preservation of the church, not its destruction, because it would continue to be used for its original purpose and the parishioners who so loved it could still come and see it. Uh, at the time, there was a theory that um, uh, timber buildings were t necessarily temporary and that it was impossible to preserve them in the longer term. Therefore, the Anglican authorities said that putting the building in a concrete shell would protect it from the elements. And uh, another reason, of course, is that the authorities were very much opposed to being saddled with the ongoing upkeep costs of the church so close to their new cathedral. Bishop Owen even stated that the destruction of hundreds of historic churches in London during the Blitz had been a blessing because they were redundant and an imposition on church authorities, which I think you would probably agree is a pretty outrageous statement. Um, so as construction got underway for the cathedral, the moving of the church to the side of, the, of it began to look more and more inevitable. The concrete foundations for the Lady Chapel were even poured um, by the builders waiting for St Paul's to be moved onto it. However, not long before the first announcement of the Lady Chapel idea, the first dissenting voice was raised in public, raised in public by Jock Bear, a member of the St Paul's congregation and an architect. In 1954, he published an article praising St Paul's in the Wellington Architecture Centre's influential magazine, Design Review. So normally Design Review had very modern pictures of modern furniture and things, but this was the first time it had a historic building on the cover. So Beer's um, article set out what was to be the main points of the argument for the following decade, and he discussed both the church's historic importance and its architectural merit. Some um, public historian colleagues of mine, Ben Schrader and Michael Kelly, are currently writing a book about historic preservation in New Zealand, in which they're cha charting the emphasis that changes over the years between architectural importance and historical importance and back again. But in Jock Bear's case, he was very clear in emphasising both architecture and history. He also took issue with the idea that, that the importance of the building could be preserved if you moved it. And he also debunked the theory that timber was temporary, citing centuries-old European buildings in Scandinavia. <coughs> Um, interestingly, however, and, uh, like the Anglicans' authorities, he did not believe that the church should be a museum or a place for visitors. He said St Paul's must not be preserved as a dead thing. It m should remain a church, alive and useful. So soon after this was published, the first meeting of the Society for the Pre Preservation of St Paul's was held, and a number of the speakers at that meeting went on to have um, crucial roles in the campaign over the next decade. Um, and of course this was a period of growing interest in the preservation of historic buildings in New Zealand and there's a number of local campaigns to save local buildings with varying degrees of success including the Canterbury Provincial Buildings in 1928 and closer to home the Christchurch in Taita. Uh, and there would also been a number of less successful campaigns, such as the crusade to save Partington's Mill in K Road, which I would have loved to have still been there. 
Um, and then stemming from the celebration of the country's centennial in 1940, there was a growing notion of heritage being a nation, a, a thing about national identity, and governments became more interested in history and cultural activities. Um, but New Zealand's heritage preservation legislation was falling behind that of the rest of the world, and so an attempt to remedy that was the Historic Places Act of 1954. And the rhetoric in Parliament when it was passed was all about um, the fact of heritage being a path to nationhood, and that act is established the Historic Places Trust, what we know now as Heritage New Zealand, and it was hailed as the sign of growing national maturity. So the stage was set for St Paul's to become one of the first real challenges for the Trust. So throughout this period, Gibb and Dorothy Tanner and many other Wellingtonians wrote countless letters of the editor to local newspapers and other organisations trying to oppose the Lady Chapel idea. Um, and something I found in my work was the architects in particular, in particular the Architecture Centre and the NZIA, played crucial roles in the campaign. But also so did many parishioners of the church, despite what must have been considerable pressure from the Anglicans to stop um, fighting. Um, and... So Roger Gibb, an architect, um, lobbied the brand new Historic Places Trust even before its first formal meeting was held and issued it with a warning shot. He said that if the public would consider them a waste of time if they failed to save the church. And at its very first meeting, they set up a subcommittee to work on Old St Paul's and its saving. But a few months later, it almost fell at the first hurdle when it passed a resolution that it would not fight with for the church, as it believed that nothing could be done without the permission of the owners, the church authorities. But then J.C. Beaglehole, academic historian and avowed atheist, who had been overseas for the first meetings, came back to attend his first meeting of the Trust as a board member. The minutes of this meeting make it clear he was astonished and outraged by the Trust's new position, and I'd love to be a fly on the wall at that meeting. Following what is described in the minutes as a lengthy discussion, the Historic Places Trust suddenly reversed its decision and reinvigorated its campaign to save the church. Uh, Beaglehole and Ormond Wilson, who became the chair of the Trust in 1958, that formed an effective alliance through their work on Old St Paul's. So Beaglehole has um, left us with lots of lovely quotes about Old St Paul's. He says that the pulling down of the church would be a blow in the face of history, a blow in the face of beauty, and a blow in the face of posterity. Um, he went on to say that Wellington had very few buildings of historical and aesthetic importance. Occasionally he went even further to say that Wellington had no other buildings of historic importance, which might be taking it a little bit far. Uh, and he concluded dramatically it would be a crime to destroy it. Um, one crucial article by Beaglehole was printed in the New Zealand Listener in 1959, headed with the provocative question, private property or national interest? And it brought an interesting strand into the campaigner's argument. Beaglehole argued that the exceptional beauty of the building, one of the glories of our short history as a nation, as he called it, meant that it was not just the legal owners who had the right to speak about the future of the church. He wrote that it was so outstandingly beautiful that everyone in the community had the right to decide its future, and that everyone in the community had the right to feel that anything outstandingly beautiful in their midst should be preserved, and that this beauty would go on to enlighten future generations. In other words, Beaglehole was maintaining that beauty and national interest trumped the church's private property rights um, to do what they wanted with their own buildings. 
He said he owned a Francis Hodgkins painting which hung on the wall in his house, and he asked what the community would do if he decided to cut it into pieces, preserving some of the best bits for the, of the painting and sticking them in new frames. <laughs> he said that if he was to do so, he would hope that he would be taken to a mental institution, or at least be ostracised by his family and society. So why then, he asked, was it okay for the owner of the church to carve it up? Likewise, the Historic Places Trust put together an emotional set of briefing notes at about this time about the church, which also questioned if St Paul's was just private property. Um, they argued that church authorities were treating the building as they would just a shed or an outhouse that had outlived its purpose. It concluded that the church had passed beyond the region of private property simply by virtue of two things, its beauty as a building and its importance as a historic building. Uh, and then the Trust also talked about the idea of embalming in concrete, the shrunken bones of the building, uh, and a beautiful thing should be visible. Another argument made by the campaigners was about the spiritual importance of the church. Beaglehole, who as I say was an avowed atheist, wrote that the church's architect Frederick Thatcher had captured in the building what he called the mystery of religion or an exaltation of the human spirit that every sensitive person may feel. He said to exchange this for anything else would be a very poor exchange. So on the one hand, we're hearing that the building could have no spiritual significance if it was not a functioning church. Um, and, but then on the others, people were saying that there was some sort of spiritual essence encapsulated within it, which is separate from its use to which it is put. So these campaigns against the moving of the church continued and pledges of large amounts of money began to come in from members of the public um, trying to save the church. In a number of months, more than 500 promises of money had been made and it appears at this point that the um, cathedral authorities began to have trouble fundraising for their very expensive new cathedral. Um, uh, in 1960, a new Bishop of Wellington arrived from the UK and he finally put to bed the idea of moving the cathedral. He said that the dismemberment of the church would be most unacceptable and that a new solution would need to be found. So this decision to end the Lady Chapel idea was a point of celebration by the campaigners and the Historic Places Trust formally campaign, uh, congratulated the campaigners and they told them that the thought they thought the preservation of the church was now a matter of course, but these celebrations turned out to be very premature. Um, so another four years passed while the cathedral was being built and no decisions were made about the church. And, um, and meanwhile, no um, maintenance work was being done on the church. As you can see, it's starting to look a bit tired there. Um, and when the cathedral was finally begin, uh, ready to open, the old parish officially ceased to exist and the parishioners became members of St Paul's Cathedral. And on the 10th of May 1964, at a moving final service, at which some of the people here today were present, um, the, um, led by Bishop Baines, um, uh, was held at St Paul's in a church which was described as filled to overflowing and as you can see there he's shutting the doors for the final time. So most of the parishioners moved with their bishop and their dean to the new cathedral keen to begin a new era in the history of the Wellington Anglican community but some were so saddened about the future of old St Paul's that they never made the move to the new cathedral. 
When the parish moved out of the church, still no decision had been made, and in the city frustration mounted, particularly about the lack of maintenance being done on the church. And here's some of the newspaper articles I found, um, many, many examples um, around about this, this time. Then nine days after the church was closed, the Historic Places Trust discovered via the newspaper that the parish would not discuss the future of the church for yet another six months. The parishioners were asked at this point what they thought the future uses um, for the church should be. And um, upstairs there's a file of all the parishioners' letters. And opinions were clearly divided within the parish, with some advocating that the church should be pulled down rather than be used for some obscure purpose, while others continued to campaign for its use. Um, at, at the same time, the lawyer and vestry member George Swan wrote in a personal capacity to the Prime Minister Keith Holyoke to try and prepare the ground for a future delegation to him, as he was expecting the Anglican authorities would at some point come to offer the church to the government, so it could be, as Swan put it, a national shrine. In response, the government confidentially um, indicated a willingness to consider this idea, but would not do anything unless the church authorities came to it. However, the Anglican authorities continued to insist that the church must continue to be a church, even though they themselves did not want it. They argued that heritage churches were different from all other heritage buildings, and that they could not live without a community. So it always at issue was that problem of finding a future use. Um, a number of options were investigated and rejected, such as a chapel of unity where people from all religions could come together, or um, the idea of moving it to the Bolton Street Cemetery, or um, that it could be used as a church by the Greek Orthodox community, which was looking for a home at the time, or that it could be a national Maori church. Um, or that it could be used at least temporarily as a parish hall, but the bishop at the time disliked this option, saying it would be a living death for the church, and shuddered at the idea that the church would contain anything as pro prosaic as a kitchen. Um, instead, another option, which was eventually adopted um, in April 1965, the Anglican authorities agreed to remove the church from Wellington and take it over the Rimatakas to Rathkeel College, an Anglican boys' school near Masterton, which had opened 18 months earlier. Um, this suggestion was um, deemed to be acceptable as it would remain within Anglican auspices, and also because a lot of the boys there were Wellington boys, they thought that it was a good thing, and also they thought that it would have a good effect on the teenage brains of all these boys. Um, so, if the Anglican community thought that the opposition was strong before this decision was made public, they had no idea of what was about to happen. A fresh round of letters streamed into the editors of the newspaper as campaigners reacted with shock. And I've got two fabulous um, cartoons from the time. The first one is called, What Will It Be This Week? So a Wellington couple were trying to decide which campaign to join <laughs> in 1965. So they've got options of Vietnam or anti-Vietnam, anti-nuclear, um, um, against the destruction of the Bolton Street Cemetery. And you'll see up in the, they've got photos of um, themselves being carted off by the police at various times. And one of them is, um, uh, keep old St Paul's in Wellington. And a second one um, by Eric Heath um, de <laughs> depicts the people fight depicts the people at that end uh, fighting to save the church from a bulldozer. 
So an interesting insight into the feelings of the people of Wellington came from a letter I found also upstairs from a letter uh, from a man called Edgar Harvey who had independently placed a little advert in the newspaper asking for the names of people <coughs> anxious to keep the church on its site. Within just a few days he had had 178 phone calls, 73 people talked to him in person and 32 letters, many from parishioners. He wrote that he had been moved and even disturbed by the deep and bitter distress caused by so many people, caused to so many people by the decision to move the church out of Wellington. He wrote that for these people, old St Paul's had been a pillar of strength throughout their lives and now they felt that they had nowhere to turn. So all these feelings came to a head when Wellington's City Councillor Margaret Campbell announced that she was to hold a public meeting to consider how to save the church at the city's central library. So Councillor Campbell's public meeting was held on the 25th of November 1965. The meeting room in the central library quickly became full, so with much drama, Campbell produced a key from her pocket and led the crowd, Pied Piper fashion, to the Wellington Town Hall to hold the meeting there. And that's the photo you can see here. Um, and this was the meeting that led to the establishment of the Freds of Old St Paul's. The vestryman, George Swan, who had tried so hard to convince the authorities to sell to the government, had resigned over the, resigned over the Rathkill decision, and he, with Margaret Campbell, became the linchpins of the early years of the new Friends organisation, and the Friends is the organisation that still exists today and helped pay for my book. Um, soon after its formation, the Friends wrote to the Bishop with a list of suggestions of what the church could be used for in the future. And you can sense the Bishop's weariness in his reply when he explains that all the things that they had put in their list that Old St Paul's could be used for were actually things he intended for his new cathedral to be used for. Um, and here's some of the petitions that were gathered at this time for the retention of the church. Um, Luckily, however, at the start of March 1966, Rathkill unexpectedly announced that it had turned the offer down, having decided that the costs of shipping the church over the hill were too great. Bishop Baines was disappointed and said, even now we shall have to find another door that will offer a future that is worthy of the history of Old St Paul's. But by the end of that month, the Anglican authorities finally decided that they could not find another door and um, finally offered to sell the church and the site to the government. And in response, the Friends of Old St Paul's promised that if the government did purchase the building, they would provide £20,000 for its restoration, maintenance and repairs. And so on 21st of November 1966, just five days before the general election, the government finally announced it would purchase the church. Holyoke said that the, the church would be retained on its site as a historic shrine and Holyoke's National Party was duly re-elected for a third term in office. <laughs> yes, very smart. Um, so, uh, so the church was shut um, for a very long time after, um, after the government took it on, and a major restoration project was undertaken by the architects from the Ministry of Works, which was a really remarkable project for the time. Um, and much of this project and many of the other projects of the church since then were, have been part funded by the Friends of Old St Paul's, which has continued its involvement in the church ever since. I'll just show you this, because this is one of my favourite photos. This is um, the fumigation of the church against Bora uh, in March 1966. They, built, they sewed this enormous tent to cover the entire building. 
Um, and then in October 1966, um, Old St Paul's was finally reopened as a public building at a ceremony attended by 400 people and has been cared for by the Historic Places Trust, now Heritage New Zealand, supported by the Friends ever since. So the issue of the continuing spiritual nature of the church is interesting. In 1968, when Old St Paul's was still closed for restoration, Dean Davies gave an address in the building, which was an important moment of reconciliation between the two sides. He said that although the church was no longer building was no longer a church, he nevertheless had every confidence that in the future it would continue to serve a spiritual purpose in the city. Old St Paul's has never been deconsecrated. And so it is interesting to note Davy's choice of language that it is no longer a church, and I call it that all the time, even though he told me not to. <laughs> um, and for many decades, Anglican services, such as weddings and christenings, were not allowed to be held in the church for this reason, and even today, christenings, Anglican christenings are never held at Old St Paul's. But even so, Dean Davies was happy to acknowledge that the building would continue to serve a spiritual purpose for the city. During many of the oral history interviews with people that I did um, during the process of writing the book, I talked to many um, members of the ex, um, the congregation, the former congregation. I queried how they felt about the statement from Bishop Owen that I quoted earlier, that he said, without a congregation, the building would be a mere curiosity devoid of spiritual significance in life, and not one of them agreed with the bishop's sentiment. When I was doing my oral history project for the book, I also talked to a previous vicar of the church who loved the church very much. It had even an experience in the church had even helped set him on his own journey towards the priesthood. But since it had closed, and that on that photo you saw of the bishop shutting the doors, he has not never once set foot in it again in the more than fifty years it has been closed. He said it is too painful, like visiting a home you once lived in, but which now has another family living in it. Today, Old St Paul's is one of the most visited places in Wellington. A dedicated team of Heritage New Zealand staff and volunteers welcome around 100,000 visitors every year, and it hosts a large number of weddings, funerals, events and concerts. Wellingtonians have remained steadfast in their commitment to Old St Paul's and have ensured that it continues to be a vibrant part of the cultural fabric of our city. While the future of Old St Paul's is secure, many of these arguments, of course, continue on for many other buildings, never more so than in Wellington in the last few years and in Christchurch since the earthquakes. We continue to tackle the issues that were raised during the bitter campaign around Old St Paul's. For example, once a building has finished its current use, what, what is its purpose? Do values placed in a building by the community, spiritual or aesthetic or architectural, trump the rights of those who own the building? And should they? How do we value one set of values over another and what should be more important? And also, does moving a building somehow lessen its value? In some ways, though, the difficult issues faced during the discussions about Old St Paul's, which is so exceptional, as you can see, was easier to argue than for a building that is not quite so lovely. If a building is not lucky enough to be as beautiful as Old St Paul's or does not elicit the same response summarised as Beagle Hole as an exaltation of the human spirit, does it still have heritage value? 
My heritage co colleague Ben Schrader recently gave a speech entitled Can Heritage Be Ugly? And he and I would both clearly say yes to that, but there are very many in the community who can't or won't see past the aesthetics of a building to see anything else of value. Likewise, the Saving of Old St Paul's has highlighted the importance of community attachment to a building and its preservation. But what if a building or a place does not have a community to advocate for it? Does a building still have value if it doesn't have a community to care for it? So we continue to grapple with these issues in Wellington and throughout the country. Thank you.